Good morning. I think my favorite word this morning is adore. Now, uh, the scripture reading today is Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and it's the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we give you thanks for your presence in our lives, in our world, and in this place. We pray that we will feel your presence, be inspired by your presence, and hear your word for us. Amen. So this Advent season, we've been sort of like working our way through the characters of the Christmas story talking about what did and what didn't happen before the birth of Jesus. And last week we got into the, the notable thing that didn't happen, you know, the virgin birth, and how this strange and, and often difficult idea is actually great news for us. It was not, however, great news for everyone, like Mary's fiancé, Joseph, who we're going to talk about today. When our story begins, Mary and Joseph are engaged, which is sort of like engagement today, but also not really. Rather than dating and, you know, Joseph getting down on one knee and proposing, the families would have gotten together and made an agreement. They would have known one another decided they were about the same social class, figured out all of the financial details, and then began planning for a three-day party that would be the wedding. Mary and Joseph may or may not have already met, but, but this was a done deal until Joseph receives the news that Mary is pregnant. This news immediately sets events in motion because everyone's honor is at stake. And uh, there are very limited ways for people to keep their honor after they hear this news. Today we might think of our honor, like if I say refer to someone's honor, maybe we think about reputation or 
pride, but it was really different in the ancient Near East. Honor was what kept people safe at night. Because before there were laws, before there were jails or police officers in little villages, before there was a government that prevented people from stealing or killing, before there was a strong centralized state, honor is what made society function and kept people safe. It worked something like this. This is use some broad strokes here, but you'll get the idea. Imagine that you live in a little village and you know everyone in that little village. And every family is on a list. They are ranked from top to bottom, from who has the most honor to who has the least honor. For the people at the top list, life is good. Everyone wants to do business with them. Everyone wants to invite them over to their house to eat. Everybody wants to marry someone in their family. But for the people at the bottom of the list, life is rough. No one wants to do business with them. No one will marry their children. No one will talk to them. And there's a reason for for why everyone is on the list. And how they behave. I mean, some of it is is lineage and wealth and a few other things. But how you move up and down that list is based on your behavior. If you steal something, you beat up an innocent person, you go to the bottom of the list. Your life instantly becomes terrible. No one talks to you. No one wants to be friends with you because you have no honor. And it's actually not just you. It's your whole family. One mistake could destroy the lives of everyone you love. So there's no jail in your little village, but that doesn't matter. Honor keeps you safe at night. And that's, that's how honor sort of worked in little villages. And the moment that Joseph learns that his fiancée Mary is pregnant, his whole family's honor is at stake. And not just his family's honor, but also the honor of Mary's family. And the only way for Mary and Joseph's family was to keep their honor was was to cast out Mary. They have to either kill her or treat her like she never existed. It's the only way to remove her shame and, and sort of show everyone in the village that they don't approve of her conduct. There were really no options here. Joseph had one way he could respond to Mary's pregnancy. As a man in a village with a pregnant fiancé, his choice was made for him. In America, we don't really face quite the same cultural forces, really at all. But, but some of those dynamics trickle down through through like pretty well-defined roles of who we're supposed to be in the world, those roles limit us in, in much the same way that Joseph's culture limited him. Like, we're given a role based on our race, our gender, our social location, our age. And then we're punished or shunned or looked down at if we don't behave how we're supposed to. And, and usually when we talk about this, we look through the lens of patriarchy. We, we talk about how patriarchy disempowers women and, and limits the options of women in the world. But it goes a lot further than that. 
Patriarchy is not just a women's issue. It affects all of us. In the way that Joseph's culture limited his option, patriarchy, patriarchy limits all of our options. I was uh, talking to my friend Sarah about this, about how this affects her and her husband as a parent. Because they have twins that are four, a boy and a girl. And her daughter can wear anything she wants. Dresses, bows, pants, sweatshirts, whatever. Zoe gets to, to shop in the boys' section and the girls' section, and no one cares. But that's not the case for her son. Isaac can only wear boy clothes. Now, granted, he does have this one pair of uh, glittery, glittery, sparkly leggings that he absolutely loves, because, come on, like, glittery leggings are, are pretty fantastic. I think if we were just a little bit less insecure, we would all wear glittery leggings, But when a four-year-old boy wears them, people mention it, that it's brave or different or unusual. And and I know that if if Isaac wants to wear a dress to the playground, he'll be stared at and made fun of. Because a dress isn't seen as, as manly enough or boy enough or strong enough. We don't want to raise our boys weak feels like it's just not an option. And this has a pretty profound effect on on who we are as adults, too. Uh, When I was in divinity school, a professor did this exercise. It blew me away. I loved it. She, uh, She had all of the women sit in a circle, and all the men sat around side and and didn't say anything. And then she asked the women to share what they loved about being women and what they mourned about being women. The men just listened until it was our turn and we switched places. The men started sharing and and almost every single man talked about how hard it was to develop emotionally vulnerable relationships and friendships with other men. The men identified the, the bond that women make, how like they'll meet and 10, minute la- 10 minutes later they're sisters and they, like, they, they support each other and got one another's back and they're crying together and like, men are like talking about the weather or the NFL or something. And most of the men struggled to have a, a single friend like that in their life. And as all the other men shared about this, I mean, I felt actually a little bit left out, Um, in part because we started with the things that we loved, and everybody talked about how they loved their big manly beards, and I expect that uh, my beard's going to fill out any day now. (laughs) Well, yeah, 38 in a couple weeks, it should should fill in any any minute now. But but more than that, I always used to joke that... uh, uh, God didn't allow me to have facial hair because God knew I'd abuse the privilege. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, I don't think that's actually true. Um, but, but more than, than that, my experience of male friendships was really different. I had a bunch of pretty like intimate and vulnerable friendships with men, largely because I went to a Christian college. And, and I'm pretty curious. I wonder if any other men who spent time in evangelical communities experienced that, that same subculture that 
actually encouraged men to be vulnerable and intimate with one another. It's a huge part of men's retreats. If you all remember, do you remember Promise Keepers? It was this big thing in the 90s, these these conferences where Christian men gathered to talk about uh, what it is to be a man and their feelings in Jesus. And actually, in in 1997, almost 800,000 people came to the mall in D.C. for a Promise Keepers event where they, they talked about how Jesus embodied all of the feminine traits that we usually attribute to women and they told men that they need to be more sensitive and vulnerable with one another. And I think that the reason there was, if you remember this, it was like all of the rage. And I think men were drawn to that because it's, it's true. Like men struggle to know how to make emotional connections because we're taught that's not what it is to be a man. We're taught that anger is like the only emotion that we're allowed to show in public. And we're taught to be like strong and stoic and not wear glittery pants. (laughs) And I think that that promise keepers uh, gave men a place where they could be real and vulnerable and honest. But it was also like this weird engine for misogyny and homophobia and this sort of new kind of sometimes even what we call toxic masculinity that that reinforced the idea that men were better than women. Uh, The movement used the Bible to say that men should be in charge of women and that the queer community was corrupting the youth. And and all this feels really weird to me. I didn't expect to, like when I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about Joseph and masculinity. I did not plan to spend so much time talking about like evangelicalism. Um, But as I started thinking about it, I was like grateful that the evangelicalism encouraged a bunch of my friends to be sensitive and vulnerable with one another, yet I know that some of those really compassionate, empathetic guys who, who stayed in evangelicalism also didn't want their wives to work outside the home, and they were really suspicious of my platonic relationships with women, and we couldn't even talk about my gay friends. And Yeah, I'm probably spending so much time talking about masculinity and Christianity because it it leapt out to me. Because I think evangelicalism felt like the last place that would challenge our ideas of masculinity. But even this, this traditionally conservative community could sense that men were being hurt by patriarchy. Folks saw a problem and tried to do something about it. But the trouble was that these communities made space for undoing male stereotypes in one way and then compensated by, by reinforcing roles with women in another way. And it actually still created a pretty narrow way to be a man. It, patriarchy causes men to miss out on so much beauty in ways that feel really familiar in our text. Joseph's culture tells him how he's supposed to respond to his pregnant fiance, but it never asks him what he wants. Like, what if Joseph wanted to stay with Mary all along? Like, what if he thought, maybe she got pregnant by some other guy, but I don't really care, because I want to be with her. She's worth the pain and the shame that would bring. 
I mean, he does the most gracious thing his culture allows to, to quietly break off the engagement. But what if that's not what he wanted? What if he wept in his room knowing that he was forced to give up the woman he wanted to spend his life with? We don't know what he wanted, but we know he didn't have choices. His imagination was limited to to the one or two options his culture gave him. Until the spirit comes to him in a dream and fills his imagination with possibility. He could choose Mary. It was his choice. The shame would only define him if he let it. The divine messenger in our story reminded him of what had always been true. That that he was free, profoundly free. He, He didn't have to live by any rule or custom he didn't consent to. He had options. Now, Now, there were consequences, of course. He and Mary would live on the margins, and it might be that that he'd go back to his hometown of Bethlehem and no one would let them stay at his house. But those weren't the only consequences. He also received love and life and the gift of fatherhood and a relationship with Mary of freedom and mutuality. The Spirit arrived and set Joseph free from the constraints of his culture. It gave him an option he didn't think he could have. And the Spirit still does that. They blow through our life and and blow away the habits and constructs that that limit our our options. I, I believe God wants us to be free God's very nature is liberation. Like, I love this, that, that even before Jesus is born, God is liberating and, and preparing the way by welcoming a man and a woman into a wildly unconventional partnership. And I, know, I, I thought this too, I don't know if it's totally true, but I, I asked a, a friend, I said, hey, can you just name all the couples that you can think of in the Bible? And they named, I don't know, 10 couples and in every instance, the man, they, man's name came first, except for this couple. It's Mary and Joseph. It's, when do we ever refer to Joseph and Mary? And that, that liberation is still at work, inviting us beyond cultural roles, beyond these like narrowly defined expectations around our gender, beyond the the constraints our society says, that we we have to be this way because of how we look or where we're from. And I don't know where this lands with with all of you. I don't know what ways you're you're limited or or how you need to be set free. I don't know how maybe you've been shaped in ways that make you feel small or make you feel like you have to hide your true self. All I know is that God is bigger than these categories and limits. If we dare to accept it, the Spirit can set us free. And that doesn't mean that the journey will be easy. It certainly wasn't for Mary and Joseph. 
their, their liberation came with social consequences. But throughout it all, God was with them. That's what they were preparing for. The liberating spirit to be made real in the world. And that's what we prepare for this Advent season. The arrival of God's presence in our lives that promises to set us free and be with us throughout it all. Amen.